The following program is brought to you with support from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, it's three years and counting. This program marks three years since Latin Pulse became an online radio program, so we celebrate again with one of our looks back at the most popular programs of the past season. But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Argentina accuses medical staff of kidnapping an estimated 500 babies born in captivity during military rule. Prosecutors accuse Norberto Bianco, Raul Martin, and the midwife, Luisa Yolanda, of providing assistance in hiding the baby's identity. The accused are now in their 80s. The babies were born in captivity to left-wing political prisoners during what is known as the Dirty War of 1976-1983. through 1983. The children were given to supporters of the Argentine government. Some were abandoned, others sold. The real parents were assassinated or disappeared. One father reunited with his son, Francisco, after 30 years. It's been a long time, but this is a historical day for Argentina. The truth will come out about what happened in the systemic kidnapping of babies. A judge in Brazil permits a baby to be registered with three parents on the birth certificate. The birth certificate includes one father and two mothers. The mothers had been in a relationship for four years and asked their male friend to help them conceive. He asked to be named on the birth certificate of the baby girl, born August 27th. The certificate also includes the names of six grandparents. Prosecutors accused police in Rio de Janeiro of running an extortion racket. Rio de Janeiro police arrested 22 of their own officers on charges of demanding payments from local businesses. Prosecutors say if the businesses didn't pay the officers, they would be cited for minor infractions and fines. Businesses paid between $12 and $1,000, and the corrupt police collected daily, weekly, or monthly. The arrest included the city's third-ranking military police officer. Prosecutors say that the 14th Battalion virtually transformed itself into a limited company based on extortions where profits were deposited to the administration or senior officers who abused their power. A Mexican Walmart may face fines for hosting a cockfight within store aisles. Walmex, a unit of Walmart, could face fines of more than $7,000 if found responsible. A Walmex spokesperson said there was nothing in violation of game regulations. The roosters were not armed with blades and betting did not take place. But the commercial director of the region, Jose Luis Hernandez, said that cockfighting is illegal there, as well as bringing live animals into an establishment. The cockfight took place on September 15th to celebrate Mexican Independence Day. It was staged by a soda company to promote its product. Walmex has until September 24th to bring evidence against the cockfighting claims. Walmex's profits have not fully recovered since a 2012 report that the company paid $24 million to bribe local officials to speed store openings and avoid regulations. For Latin Pulse, this is Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in France. After our listening groups in Brazil and the United States, our French listeners made up the next largest group, 
during the past season. Merci beaucoup. And so now, on to our anniversary program, which has become a popular tradition. Here are great quotes and outtakes from the most popular programs of our third season. With the World Cup, massive street protests, a contentious election campaign, and fallout from the Snowden spy scandal, Brazil has occupied much of our attention during the past year. Professor Cristina Pacheco of the State University of Paraíba in Brazil joined us several times last season. In this excerpt, she discusses the political realities for Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff. And right now she could win the, the Brazilian election. She could be re-elected. And that is really strong, you know. That's impressive, in my opinion. Politics is so interesting, right? Because in um, Marina Silva, she was really, she was a president candidate in the last election, and she took 20% of the votes, of the Brazilian votes, which is a lot, 20%. And, um, and she got herself a cabinet post because <laughs> of that, yes? Because of that, because Brazil have the presidentialismo de coalizão, coalition presidentialism, which, which makes uh, the president needs to um, settle up everybody, not, not only the parties that are supporting you, but also sometimes the parties that are not against, not opposition, but are there just waiting for the pact for the bargain, you know, for exchange some issues. But Marina tried to build her own party, but she was not able to. She came 50,000 signatures short yeah. of being able to register a new party in Brazil. But in order to win a presidential election, she needs to have time on TV, she needs to have money, a lot of things, you know. And then she needs the backup of a stronger or bigger party, which is PSB. PSB right now, it's, I don't know, it, I think it's Socialist Brazilian Party. I think this is the, the name. PSB is right now the second leftist party, the second biggest leftist party right now after PT. I don't think PT is leftist anymore, but anyway. But supports PT, supports the party of Dilma. So it's funny, right? And that the exactly from the friendly fire, <laughs> you're having such a strong um, composition, alliance, between Marina Marina Silva and Eduardo Campos, which was mean, which is governor of Pernambuco. Pacheco refers there to the late governor Eduardo Campos, who died in a plane crash while campaigning for president this summer. Silva stepped into Campos's role and almost immediately became the main challenger to President Rousseff. Pacheco also referenced the Brazilian Socialist Party and the ruling Workers Party of President Rousseff, often just referred to as the PT from its Portuguese acronym. But this new coalition okay. on the left, the socialists with the environmentalists against the Workers' Party, against the PT. Yes. Th this points to, to President Rousseff's weakness that was displayed by the protest movement that basically said the Workers' Party has moved so far to the center and has become so corrupt that yeah. they really don't represent the left. You actually just said the same thing to yeah. us. Yeah, that's it. I didn't... I didn't um I didn't say in these terms, but that's that's exa exactly that. It's like the, the the social movements are moving to or are coming back to their original 
original position. We usually say that PT, or the Works Party, it's turning to pink, or light pink, actually, you know? Because they used to be in, in the elections of 1989, that Lula runs against Collor de Mello, and Collor de Mello was the one that was impeached, although wasn't, wasn't he re resigned before being impeached, but anyway. Um, Lula was really strong, you know. The statement of Lula was, for instance, not to pay the mortgage with IMF. Was, you know, it were really socialist statements. And uh, there was a time in the work party that was a slogan that was against the bourgeois, because bourgeois in Portuguese is burgueses, burguês, vote, the, the number of the, our, of the work party, which is 13. So, uh, contra burguês, vote 13. And now you can't say that anymore. They become re... Um, they become the bourgeoisie, no? <laughs> yeah, the, um, the really point that we realize that the work party was becoming the bourgeoisie in one sense was the 2002 election, when they, their main coalition was with Liberal Party. Ten years ago, was impossible to think that ten years before 2002, was impossible to think that the Liberal Party, the Work Party in Brazil, would collide, would connect with the Liberal Party because of their speech, you know, or their vision of world. Because the liberals were too centrist. And because, mostly because Work Party was a Marxist way of thinking, you know. They were Marxists. They studied Gramsci, Marx, all these important authors. To, they were socialists, and they are not anymore. Although inside of the Work Party was a lot of collisions, right, from the right to the left. They have a lot of visions, but they uh, combine it. They share this way of thinking. Beyond this important historical context on the political scene in Brazil, we also discuss the current political competition with Paulo Sotero of the Brazil Institute of the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., via Skype. The elections in Brazil, and this will be the seventh consecutive free democratic elections since the reinstatement of democracy in Brazil, they are uh, 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 fought on political economic ground, what is important is whether the economy is growing, if inflation is high or not, how is employment, and a general sense of direction of the country. The president, current president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, the first woman president, is well positioned right now uh, in the polls. At the same time, two-thirds of Brazilians uh, say that they want change. Uh, this is uh, I think a way of conveying an enormous anxiety there is in the country about an economic model of growth that seems to have run its course. It was a model of growth based on consumption. Uh, and we all know in Brazil that we need to move to a model based on investment. Uh, it's a higher quality type of economic growth. And uh, that's what that is uh, the uh, what will probably decide uh, the the presidential elections of October of this year. 
obviously President Rousseff has rebounded in the polls from what happened to her during the protests. But as you point out, the economic factors are trickier now this year, that the growth factors aren't as strong. And and what is your view uh, of, of this? Is, is she going to be able to to cope with this and come to an easy re-election or not? Now, easy re-election it will not be. Uh, she may be even be able to, to beat all other candidates in the first round. In Brazil, we, uh, in order to become president, you have to win 50% plus one vote of the valid votes in Brazil. So uh, if no candidate makes that in the first round, which will be October 5th, the two uh, the two top candidates uh, run again, which uh, likely to happen uh, October the 26th. Even President Lula, uh, who governed from 2003 to 2010, was the most popular politician ever in Brazil, uh, 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 fought uh, second uh, round elections in, in his two elections. So uh, the expectation is that will be a very well, uh, very much uh, contested election. Uh, not only economic factors are important, Brazil is a very large country. There are 26 states. Uh, local politics, as here, matters a lot. So uh, the shape of Local alliances, political alliances, uh, is key to the, the outcome, how you mobilize for campaigns. The campaign, uh, television obviously plays an enormous role in uh, electoral campaigns in Brazil. Uh, and uh, uh, the, 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 the personalities, you know, the, the president, although popular, she's seen as a very honest and a very hardworking uh, person. Uh, but she is not a natural politician. And one more thing, Rick, if you want to say, there is also a question about Brazil's position in the world. You know, it's uh, after a very protagonistic or activist foreign policy of President, both President Cardoso, but especially President Lula that followed Cardoso. Uh, Brazil has really turned inward and now has a president that really doesn't like very much foreign policy. <laughs> and that, like reminds you of, of Obama a bit. You know, it's <laughs> not as engaged in foreign policy. And, and she doesn't like politics in general. She's like our politicians. After those analyses from this spring and last fall, we'll see how President Rousseff fares in the presidential campaign in a few weeks. Coming up, more popular interviews for our anniversary program. We'll hear from the Falkland Islands, the place Argentina calls Las Malvinas. And we'll discuss religion in Cuba. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now, more for our retrospective of some of the most popular interviews from our third season. We head far south now to the Falkland Islands, still an area of dispute in the South Atlantic. Argentina claims the Falklands and refers to them as Los Malvinas. The islands are a British overseas territory, 
we spoke to one member of the island's legislative assembly, Mike Summers, via Skype. I think the people of, uh, of Argentina actually collectively have some much, much bigger issues to deal with than, uh, than, than owning the Falklands. And, and I think that the position probably is that if you go to almost any Argentine and say, do you think that, our, that the Falklands belong to Argentina? They would probably say yes, because that's what they've been taught from school, and, and therefore, why wouldn't you say yes? If you say to them, do you really care about it, and is it more important than, than you know, your child's education or, or, or escaping from, from poverty or the elimination of corruption, I think the answer is almost certainly no. So, I mean, the political classes in Argentina are certainly, you know, very wedded to this idea because it brings them a degree of cohesiveness amongst the population, or, or at least no opposition from, from the population to, to what they're doing. But, I mean, do Argentines really, in their hearts, care about this issue? I, I'm not sure that they do. But there's no, there's no benefit to any of them, particularly in standing up to the government and saying, actually, you shouldn't be doing this to these poor people because they'll be branded as, as traitors and... Um, and, and, and people not suitable to, to represent their country. So <clears throat> is, there a, is there a way forward from this? Um, in, in the short term, no, whilst we have the sorts of government that, uh, that Christina Fernandez de Kirchner leads because she will continue to, to, to stoke this fire. Your relationship with, with the UK is mostly as an autonomous region. Is there a way to, to negotiate something like that with Argentina? Do you think that that is a, a possibility if there were political change in Argentina? Uh, I, I think that would be very, very difficult to achieve in the short to medium term. Uh, the Argentine position over the last 10 years or so under the Kirshners <clears throat> has destroyed any, any sort of vestiges of a relationship that there were between the Falklands and Argentina. So I, I don't think there's any prospect that, that Falkland Islanders would agree any kind of, uh, of involvement by Argentina in, in the governance and, uh, and management of our country. Um, they, 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 simply, they simply couldn't be trusted. Um, as, a, as, a, as a perfect example, um, I and others took part in negotiations with the, uh, with the Menem government in, in the late 90s to, to set out an agreement in which we could cooperate in various areas, and it included managing the fish stocks in the southwest Atlantic, it included uh, hydrocarbons, it included issues to do with flights and things. And this current Argentine government has simply reneged on, on all of that. So that, are, that, that you know, basically it says to you, well, how can these people be trusted? I mean, even if they did say that they would respect this human right and that human right, and uh, and allow the people to be autonomous and do what they want. Could you could you reasonably trust a, a country who, who acts in that manner? Um, and I think the answer here is universally no, you can't. So I don't foresee that kind of development in the in the foreseeable future. And one of the odd things that uh, that Ambassador Timmerman has said in uh, in recent months is that he accepts that the people of the Falkland Islands are not colonised, but the territory is. Well, that's a very bizarre concept, and, and, and not one I don't think that, that's familiar to most international lawyers, colonialism was about colonizing people, not about colonizing land. So the important thing about the Falklands that makes it quite different to just about every other uh, former colony in, in the world, uh, either of, of the UK or of France or of, um, or of um, uh, the Dutch or whoever else, is that this was an empty land. There were no people colonized here. Moving back onshore, Another popular discussion centered around political developments in Paraguay.
we spoke to Andrew Nixon of the University of Birmingham via Skype from the United Kingdom, the co-editor of The Paraguay Reader. Here's an outtake from that interview covering corruption, the country's protest movement, and former president of Paraguay, Fernando Lugo. You also mentioned Fernando Lugo, the former president of Paraguay. Uh, he is recently elected to a Senate position there. Is, is he connected at all to the protest movement that continues in Paraguay, or is that now separate from, from him? Well, the, the protest movement that you're referring to, Rick, is a very interesting one that's, that's arisen just in the, past, in, in the past month or so. And he's certainly not in any way uh, linked directly, nor, nor is he uh, a major player in it. It's, it's a movement that um, uh, arose mainly in Asuncion, but it spread throughout the country uh, in response to media revelations that leading politicians have for decades been stuffing Congress itself, the administrative staff of Congress, with their own relatives. Um, um, and what the, the, the media revelations uh, showed uh, requiring Congress, which was very reluctant to, at first, to, to publish the names and salaries of the people on his payroll, were some outrageous cases. For example, of a former head of the Senate, uh, Victor Bogado, who's still in the Senate, no longer the head of the Senate, who, who had his nanny, the nanny for his two children, the nanny of his two children was on the, on the payroll of Congress and of the Itaipu, Itaipu Binacional, which is the, the, the very um, high salary uh, body that runs one of the largest um, hydroelectric power plants in the world. Uh, in, in an agreement with, which half shared with, with Brazil. Um, um, and uh, he, he, he had this woman on, on the payroll in Congress uh, and in Itaipu, although she was a nanny of his two children. We've got other cases of um, members of Congress who've got their uh, uh, people looking after their, their farms in the countryside, um, very lowly paid people in practice. Uh, Receiving ostensibly high salaries again uh, on the in the administration of Congress and the in the administrative staff of Congress, of course, where they never in practice worked at all. Um, so the case of Bogada was taken as a kind of test case, and uh, citizen protests uh, increased with street marches, um, hands round the Congress building and circling the Congress building, the refusal of many restaurants and cafes in the city centre to serve the 23 senators who voted against the um, uh, plan to, um, to, to take away the political immunity of, of Bogada so that he could be charged with, with corruption offenses. And this campaign, interestingly, began to gain traction and began to spread throughout the, uh, the, the country into other, other, other cities in, in, in Paraguay. And eventually, the Congress had to change its position. It re-voted, and when it took a second vote, the vote was completely different. It voted in favor of Bogado being stripped of, of immunity from prosecution, and he is now currently um, um, uh, facing charges. Um, but this is only the tip of the iceberg in Paraguay's deeply corrupt political system. And there's a real danger that Bagada may turn out to be a convenient scapegoat if further prosecutions are abandoned. But it's certainly a very positive step in the right direction in terms of citizen activism. And now a footnote to that story. 
powerful Senator Bogado still holds his post in Paraguay. This summer, he filed countercharges, saying some of the documents used against him regarding the corruption allegations, well, those documents, he says, were forged. Of note, Transparency International ranks Paraguay as having some of the most severe corruption problems in Latin America, second only to Venezuela. Well, finally, that brings us to religion on our anniversary retrospective. One of our most popular conversations of this past year was with Cuban cleric Dr. Reinerio Arce, the rector and president of the Protestant Ecumenical Seminary in Matanzas, Cuba. Religion in general, not only Christians, religion in general has been growing in Cuba for the last 20 years enormously. We have been in different, uh, we have lived different moments, different moments of difficulties in the 60s and the 70s where there was tension between the churches and the government. We were discriminated as Christians, but that has passed. Uh, I think we are in a very good moment. We have freedom to preach, freedom to worship. Churches now are involved in social work uh, with elderly, with uh, disabled people, with uh, uh, sick children. So the churches are involved in different programs, social programs, uh, helping people who need our help. That's it, traditionally been a part of the Cuban state since the revolution. Exactly. And the Cuban state has done a better job than many countries in mm -hmm. Latin America has. So this is an interesting change. Exactly, but because it's, it, Although it's a difference between the Cuban state and other Latin American countries, the state can't do everything. And the state acknowledges that the church can and must. It's part of our mission. I always say the mission of the church has two sides. One, to proclaim the gospel. One, to bring Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ. But the other part of that coin, the two sides of a coin, is that God is calling us as disciples to help the people. And I think the Cuban government slowly has acknowledged that. That is part of the mission. If you do not let the church do that, you are, you are, uh, you are stopping the church of its mission. And I think now the Cuban government has understand that and we are committed to that. And uh, we, we have freedom of religion, surely. There are always problems, no? but uh, that you have to discuss. I guess here also, no issues that have to be discussed between churches and government, different issues. But uh, I say, no, we're not the we're not the kingdom of God. There are there are problems in Cuba, and there are sometimes some issues that we have to discuss. But in general, the the freedom of of, uh, of worship, the freedom of uh, having your own religion, not only Christians, we have other religions that are more in number than Christians in Cuba. And Santeria and exactly, other religions. Afro, Afro-Cuban religions, we have a Jewish community, we have the Spiritism in Cuba, that's from the 19th century, we have a Muslim community, we have Baha'is, we have Buddhists, those are small groups. The largest groups are Christians and the Afro-Cuban religions, especially the Santeria and the Jewish community also, and the Spiritism, there are a number that are the, and about the largest. What's the percentage of people now practicing some type of religion in Cuba? Oh, I think we are a very religious people. I think the majority of the Cubans, I don't know exactly the percent, but I will guess more than 80-85% of the, of the people practice or have some kind of religious faith. And also the, in Cuba you have the, what we call the popular religion. Uh, for example, people who are not Roman Catholic, they are not 
they're not Christians, they're Roman Catholic or Protestant, they're not Santeros, but they worship, they worship San Lazarus. And if you go to Cuba the 17th of December, that's a good uh, moment to go if you want to research about religion in Cuba. You, that's the San Lazarus Day. And you will find 100,000 people walking to the sanctuary that's very near Havana, south of Havana, about 10 kilometers from Havana. You see thousands of people walking there because they have promised to San Lazaro. San Lazaro has to do with uh, health, people believe. So uh, there are different forms of religion in Cuba. Thanks for joining us this week for our third anniversary program with excerpts and outtakes from some of our best and most popular programs of the past season. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes and Facebook. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, producer Jim Singer and associate producer Gabriela Canchola. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support from Webster University and through the support of Link TV. This program is copyright 2014, Los Rocas Productions. The preceding program was brought to you with the support of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University.